Hi there, welcome to Can You Feel It? This podcast aims at expanding our intellectual horizons. I am Jeanne Proust and I'd like to pull philosophy down from its academic ivory tower by deciphering and discussing philosophical texts and ideas with you. Let's instill some thinking in our life to better feel and philosophize around. This episode aims at questioning certain assumptions hidden behind the way we usually conceive happiness. What matters other than how people's experiences feel from the inside? Suppose there were an experience machine that would give you any experience that you desired. Super duper neuropsychologists could stimulate your brain so that you would think and feel that you're writing a great novel or making a friend or reading an interesting book. All the time you would be floating in a tank with electrodes attached to your brain. Should you plug into this machine for life, pre-programming your life's experiences? If you are worried about missing out on the desirable experiences, we can suppose that business enterprises have researched thoroughly the lives of many others. You can pick and choose from their large library or smorgasbord of such experiences, selecting your life's experiences for, say, the next two years. After two years have passed, you will have 10 minutes or 10 hours out of the tank to select the experiences of your next two years. Of course, while in the tank, you won't know that you're there. You'll think it's all actually happening. Others can also plug in to have the experiences they want, so there's no need to stay unplugged to serve them. Ignore problems such as who will service the machines if everyone plugs in. Would you plug in? What else can matter to us other than how our lives feel from the inside? Nor should you refrain because of the few moments of distress between the moment you've decided and the moment you're plugged. That's a few moments of distress compared to a lifetime of bliss, if that's what you choose. And why feel any distress at all if your decision is the best one? This very famous text, known as the Experience or Pleasure Machine Experiment, is an excerpt from Anarchy, State and Utopia, published in 1974 and written by Robert Nodzik. You also find it in The Examined Life, published in 1989 by the same author. By using this famous thought experiment, Nodzik is asking us if really having pleasurable experiences, feeling happy, is really what we seek. 
And this is indeed one of the characteristics of happiness that are often just simply assumed. That happiness is the ultimate goal of our existence, that feeling pleasurable experiences is what we do want and what we should want at the end. So all we want is to be happy. We want to do, to be, to feel a lot of things in order to reach goals. But happiness appears to be the end within and for itself. We don't want to be happy for the sake of something else. We seem to want happiness for its own sake. There is also another characteristic of happiness that is often assumed. It is that happiness should be somehow a question of personal willpower. So we're going to explore those two assumptions and ask ourselves if happiness really is all what we want at the end, and also if it is up to us to be happy or if the ability to feel happy is just randomly assigned. But first, we have to ask ourselves what exactly is meant by that vague term, happiness. There seems to be no objective definition for happiness. The contingencies within everyone's existence make people wish for different things as the sources of what could make them happy. We might consider happiness as a universal wish, though without any possible universal agreement on what exactly might cause it. And here there is also often a confusion between what the sources of happiness are and what happiness is. People are often simply asking themselves about the sources of happiness. For instance, happiness is being with good friends. This is not a view about the nature or definition per se of happiness, but rather a theory about the sorts of things that tend to make us happy. And it leaves unanswered or takes for granted the question of just what happiness is. And that might be unavoidable. So we are going to keep assuming that happiness is a lasting feeling of pleasure and of well-being. So is happiness really what we are looking for in the end? First, I want to uh, make a little remark about the people who seem willing to be unhappy. It's. Uh, you know, it's something that I observe a lot in my uh, dear compatriots, the French people. We have a tendency to love uh, complaining. There is a sort of potentially, in certain people, addiction to unhappiness that can be explained by different factors. A lack of self-esteem, maybe people feel undeserving of happiness. Maybe a bit of guilt uh, that might be also religiously funded because I don't know, of decisions in their past. Some people choose to punish themselves. Maybe there is also a familiarity with unhappiness. If it is what you're used to, you'd rather stick to your habits than, you know, fear the unknown. Maybe there is also a bit of suspicion. There is a fear to feel joy since positive feelings might be a setup for disappointment. There is this general attitude of cynicism or pessimism towards reality that maybe for French people make them somehow look smart. But all that doesn't make them actively want to be unhappy. They are just unhappy. But in other cases, I would say that some people wallow in their misery. They take almost a certain pleasure at being dissatisfied. And even normal people, we sometimes enjoy negative experiences of fear, of sadness, of disgust. 
there is sometimes a complacency or a comfort, a certain perverse pleasure that we find in it. My name is Paola Nicola. I'm a philosopher, and there is a, a question that remains unsettling for me. Um, it's, are we even capable of a state of happiness? And sometimes I wonder, because I notice that in my life, very often, at the moment when I reach um, a full bliss, um, and I'm not the only one in that case, I start to invent myself new problems. And I think it gets back to the classical analysis of pleasure. Uh, there are many philosophers, such as Plato or Leibniz, who says that in order to feel a pleasure, you need some contrast. And for instance, the pleasure of smoking a cigarette is based on semi-pleasure mixed with semi-pain. And the main idea is that we cannot hold for a very long time, we cannot support almost um, for a very long time a state of pleasure. Um, there is an increase, we reach, I would say, a climax, for instance, um, uh, with uh, sexual pleasure, and then it necessarily decreases. If we were to imagine an orgasm that would last for more than one or two minutes, it's very likely that it would turn into some kind of torture. Sometimes I wonder if really a state of happiness is even possible. Not only if happiness is the goal, or if happiness is reachable, but is that even possible to experience a state of happiness during a long time? So it indeed seems that all we want ultimately then is to have pleasurable experiences, even when they are triggered by negative ones. I'm thinking here, for instance, when we listen to a sad song or something like that, there is a pleasure at feeling sad somehow. But why would we want to be happy or to have pleasurable experiences is really a question at the end that looks like an absurd question. Again, pleasure and happiness seem to be the end or the ultimate goal within and for itself. We don't want to feel pleasure or to be happy, as I said at the beginning, for the sake of something else. We want it for its own sake. We find this idea, for instance, in Aristotle. But certain situations might actually make us question the fact that happiness and the experience of pleasure is the life goal. There might be other ultimate goals. So let's look again at Nozick's experience machine and assume that being happy is to be able to gather as many pleasurable experiences or feelings as one can. So again, you're floating in that tank, you have electrodes attached to your brain, and of course, while in the tank you don't know that you're there, you think that what you feel is actually happening. The question that Nozick is asking is, well, would you plug into that machine? And as he puts it, what else can matter to us? other than how our lives feel from the inside. But obviously here Nozick is being provocative and he provides the following suggestions. He says that, well, no, we probably would not plug in because we want to do certain things, to be the proper agents, 
that are causing some experiences. We want to be the proper agents in or of our life and not just have the feeling that we did these experiences without it being true. So we want to be ourselves, have free will, be in control of ourselves, true to ourselves. And we also want for the world to be true to us. So maybe what we desire more than just happiness is authenticity, genuine contact with reality, no matter how harsh this reality is. We would prefer that to a fake reality, just like we rather know the truth than being lied to, even when it's supposedly for our own good. When you're cheated on, when you know you might be ignorant of something, you usually want to know the truth, no matter how painful it is. You find that idea in Brave New World from Huxley, for instance, with the character Bernard Marx refusing to take Soma, the drug that's supposed to make you feel good and that disconnects you from reality. Okay, some of you might still say, well, no, I'd rather plug in, why not? It's gonna be great, I'm gonna have a great time. Who cares if it's the real reality or not? Well, so if we are to play the devil's advocate, Let's look at interesting counter-arguments some philosophers have raised about the question of what we call the status quo bias. Maybe we just don't like change is all. If we were to formulate the experience machine uh, thought experiment differently, as Joshua Green does, for instance, where you wake up in a medical facility in the future and you are told the following by a doctor. The year is 2659. The life with which you are familiar is an experience machine program selected by you some 40 years ago. We at IEM interrupt our clients' programs at 10-year intervals to ensure client satisfaction. Our records indicate that at your three previous interruptions, you deemed your program satisfactory and chose to continue. As before, if you choose to continue with our program, you will return to your life as you know it, with no recollection of this interruption. Your friends, loved ones, and projects will all be there. Of course, you may choose to terminate your program at this point if you aren't satisfied for any reason. Do you intend to continue with our program? Somehow we feel that getting back to the simulation is more okay because it is the status quo. Whereas plugging in, in Nozick's experiment, implied a change. If you are already in the machine, then staying is just easier, regardless of the quality of life we experience. Brigard, another philosopher, asks us to imagine that we are already plugged into the matrix. Again, so, so to say, I mean, so many works of fiction echo the experience machine. Okay, so imagine just like Joshua Green does, that we are already plugged into that matrix, and that if we were to unplug, we would find ourselves in our real life either in prison or in Monaco as a multimillionaire artist, or we are not told what our real life is. If people were told that their real life was to be in prison, only 13% of the people wish to disconnect. Brigard asked actually these people because he did run a study, which was not the case with Nozick. And even for the two other options, imagining that your real life is to be a multimillionaire artist living in Monaco, or not knowing what your real life is, only around 50% of the people wished to disconnect, showing that someone's decision 
to be in virtual reality has more to do with what they are accustomed to. If VR is all they ever knew, then they might prefer it, especially if the real life sucks. So people might crave happiness at any cost after all, even the cost of authenticity, of knowing you are in the real world. But let's now go back to other examples of things that people crave perhaps more than happiness. How about power? Indeed, life itself seems to be nothing but a will to power, to take Nietzsche's expression. Do you find this idea also in Hobbes, a philosopher who claims that the ultimate motivation to act for any human being stems from one's perpetual preoccupation with acquiring, increasing and exercise power and obtaining through that power the recognition from others. So for Hobbes, power rather than happiness is the central human motivation. And if we seek happiness, it would just be as a means or as a byproduct of seeking power. We could also look at what people should want, not only at what they actually want. A good life, after all, is not only a happy life, it is also a life of goodness in which morality or virtue is involved. Should we say that a sadistic tyrant who claims that his happiness resides in killing innocent people has a good life? Probably not. And less extravagantly, should we say that people who exploit others for their own benefit have a good life, are aiming at the right thing, even if that makes them happy? No, probably not. And even beyond that problem, there is simply no objective definition for happiness. Again, it is a universal wish, perhaps, but it has particular recipes. There is no universal agreement on what causes it. Kant is famous for having insisted upon that subjective content of the concept of happiness. If happiness is a satisfaction of our desires, then we have to look at what these desires are, and we can only realize how they differ from social class to social class, from culture to culture, from person to person, even in the same culture at the same time. The one who is sick will say that happiness relies in being healthy. The poor will say that wealth is central to happiness. So happiness is too relative altogether. It's too subjective. It is, as Kant says, an ideal of imagination. So he says we better aim at doing the right thing because the right thing is actually way easier to determine or to agree upon than what causes happiness. But if you look at Kant's remark, actually at the end, even for Kant, happiness is nonetheless a hope. You deserve it if you act morally. What he says is that don't aim at happiness, but do what makes you worthy of being happy. So, happiness resides still in his philosophy as something we should hope for, we should be able to hope for, by acting morally. And looking even closer at Kant, it resides also within our moral activity itself. Not only as a possible horizon or reward for good actions, but about this inner peace that Kant speaks about, that you find when ethically in accord with yourself. So it seems that Kant himself actually has a definition for happiness. But let's leave that now, as we will be coming back to the dangers of preferring our own happiness above anything else in another episode soon. 
Let's go back to the second question I've been asking at the beginning that has to do with our responsibility in our feeling happy or not. So is it up to us to be happy or is the ability to feel happy just randomly assigned? To what extent is happiness a question of willpower? Well, first, let's be honest and admit that a bit of good fortune appears as necessary. If you look at even the etymology of the word happiness, you have this word hap, which is an archaic term for luck, fortune, chance. So happiness is a good hap, is something that luckily happens. So there is this idea of randomness, of luck, within the etymology. You find also that in bonheur, in French, where bonheur means a good timing, so to say, or Glück in German, which also means luck and not only happiness. Imagine yourself stuck in the worst situation, for instance, in the bronze bull of Phalaris in Sicily, which would be brought to a certain level of heat where you would just, you know, bake in there. Would you manage to be happy? We need, so it seems, a minimum of necessary conditions. Health, for instance, a minimum of resources to at least be able to physically preserve this health, perhaps living in a free country, etc. So there seems to be an externalist meaning to the word happiness. Heteronomous causes or conditions that are necessary in order to be happy. So happiness in that sense would be the objective observation that someone's life is going well for that person. It depends on circumstances. Some things benefit us independently of our attitudes or feelings. This objective approach, and by objective I mean that you would need to possess some objective good in order to be happy, can be found in Aristotle in a way. When he speaks about eudaimonia, that can be translated more accurately as human flourishing than happiness or human well-being, he speaks about a life that consists in rational and virtuous activity. You need that in order to be happy. It is in the fulfillment of our rational and moral human capacities that we can find happiness. For Aristotle, a couch potato cannot count as someone who is doing well or leading a happy life, even if that couch potato seems content. Now let's look at more of an internalist or psychological meaning or position in regards to happiness. It seems that happiness requires also inner mental states. After all, being happy is to feel happy. We are not anymore speaking about objective characteristics of a person's life now, but about characteristics of the person themselves. To feel happy is to be in a certain sort of psychological state or condition. But here again, part of this seems to not be up to us. We cannot just choose to feel happy. There is an inner predisposition that we just inherit, a physical, genetic feature of our character or temperament that allows certain persons to naturally feel inclined towards happiness, where others might not have this luck. You find that in the theory of the humor by Hippocrates. Hippocrates speaks about the fact that certain people are 
predisposed to be melancholic or predisposed to be very energetic and maybe choleric. But let's look at more recent research on the topic. If we look at the work of certain geneticists, such as David Licken, for instance, we find studies where it is discovered that 10% of our happiness depends of external circumstances, while 50% of our happiness depends on biological determinism. And there is 40%, then that seems to be acquired dispositions requiring some willpower. Those are pretty famous percentages by Licken, but there is a nuance here that I want to bring. Even our willpower might be submitted to a certain determinism, so that 40% at the end isn't clear. Feeling able to play an active role in building our happiness might not be up to us. Anyway, for Licken, everyone is born with a certain set point for happiness in the same way that your household thermostat is set to maintain a certain temperature in your home. So events happening in your life might affect your level of happiness, but eventually you will return to your genetic set point, just as the temperature of your home will return to your thermostat set point after you have let in cold air by opening a door or window. Using a multidimensional personality questionnaire, Licken and his colleague Telegen concluded, I quote, that neither socioeconomic status, educational attainment, family income, marital status, or an indicant of religious commitment could account for more than about 3% of the variance in well-being. From 44 to 52 of the variance in well-being, however, is associated with genetic variation. So let's look at this biological determinism. It's not like there is a happiness gene per se, but you might know that certain neurotransmitters, chemical molecules, play a role in our feeling happy. Look at endorphin, for instance, which is against pain, dopamine, which is linked to pleasure and excitement, oxytocin, which is linked to tenderness, love, emotional attachment, serotonin, which is a natural antidepressant, transported by more or less large proteins. Here I'm actually going to let someone a bit more familiar with biology and genetics speak for me. So neuron is a type of cell, a type of nerve cells. In every cell, there is a nucleus. In that nucleus, you find DNA, which is, if you will, a giant recipe book to make all sorts of proteins. This recipe book is always the same in every single cell of an individual's body. This DNA is inherited half from the father, half from the mother. Every cell, depending on what organ it is, will read, so to say, a specific part of the recipe book which makes the organ function properly. The neuron will create neurotransmitters, for example, such as serotonin, which are like messengers between a nerve and another nerve, or a nerve and a gland or a muscle. Let's focus now on serotonin. This messenger is released by a first neuron in a little space between the first and the second neuron. The second neuron has receptors at the surface of its membrane. When the serotonin is linked at the receptors of the second neuron, it can activate the second neuron. 
the more serotonin can stay in the little space between the two neurons, the more chances there are to activate the second neuron. It's now well known that a low level of serotonin in this little space can be the cause of depression. And so first, certain people due to DNA will create more or less serotonin, but also there is a transporting protein produced by the first neuron, which can bring back serotonin from the space between the two neurons to the first neuron. And the characteristic of these transporting proteins are also due to the DNA of each individual. So if the transporting proteins that transport serotonin are too long, which is a genetic effect, they are moving too much serotonin back to the strain neuron too fast, then the serotonin won't stay free long enough and will have less chances to activate the second neuron. And it's interesting, certain antidepressants precisely are aiming at slowing the traffic job of these transporting proteins in order to release more serotonin by preventing it to go back to the neuron it's originated from, and it aims at inhibiting the efficiency of the shuttles breaking too hastily the serotonin back to its home. I just want to make a last remark here about the biological component of unhappiness as well. For easily depressed people, but also for all of us, genetically lucky or not, we experience moments of sadness or unhappiness. Now, making ourselves aware that sadness can come from physiological or biological causes can actually help us fight it. It helps diffuse or forestall the feeling of unhappiness, sadness or anxiety. This idea you can find, for instance, in the philosopher Alain, who says that once we acknowledge the biological part of our feeling unhappy, we can more patiently wait for our inner good weather to come back. Sadness may just be due to a temporary hormonal loss of balance, like a bad cold, and to overthink it to overanalyze it, to ruminate about this feeling of unhappiness by seeking external causes in vain to explain them might actually feed these feelings, support them. So to conclude, I just want to say that happiness not only might not be the ultimate goal, but also its definition is often replaced by lists of its potential sources. And as we saw, that might obviously not be something we can all agree upon. A simplistic conception of happiness as a state of well-being requires more analysis about what being well or doing well actually means. So yes, overthinking about moments of sadness might be detrimental to our happiness, and we probably should simply let time do its healing when we feel unhappy. And yes, a large part of our being happy is not up to us. But nonetheless, it seems that certain decisions we make can greatly affect our well-being and that a discipline of the mind might be necessary, even if not sufficient, to avoid certain pitfalls. We will look towards that direction in our next episode. We'll explore further the relationship between rational thinking will, and happiness. Thank you for listening to Can You Feel It? A podcast where we explore the world with a philosophical lens. Many thanks to my partner Johnny Nicholson for producing, recording, and editing the podcast, as well as composing all of the music. 
Stay tuned for the next episode.